there are mathematical aspects of semiotics, which are not that complicated. And once we have those in mind, we know that languages, symbols adapt themselves to cultures. They come out of cultures. And, and the grammars to support those symbols come out of cultures. So yes, I think that the way, way to look at it, it's, it's, I also ask this about the mind. Cognitive science, as generally understood, asks what is in the mind. To me, the question is not what is in the mind, but what culture is the mind in? Um, or what is the mind in, just more generally? And that's a similar way of putting it uh, relative to cognitive sciences. So it has, how have our minds adapted to our cultures? And how have our languages adapted to our minds and our cultures? Um, I think that's the right way to look at it. Welcome to The Story of Language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I am an English teacher. And throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we talk about the cognitive revolution and whether the revolution really exists at all. We discuss the beginnings and the state of the art of the study of cognition and show why it's important to celebrate all discoveries as progress, even if they are doomed to failure. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at storyoflanguage.com or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode 10 of The Story of Language. Today we are going to talk about the cognitive revolution and... You know, when I was when I was researching about this subject, the thing that I found most interesting was how the history of language learning, which is my interest, how that kind of mirrors the progress of like the understanding of linguistics. Like like for example, you know, there was a, a time when psychology was focused on behaviorism and so was language learning. You know, they were kind of paralleled. And, and I'm, you know, and then, for example, if we look at the ancient past, you know, learning language was done using, you know, like grammar translation method. And in, in, in today's modern world, it's more of a usage-based kind of language learning um, approach. My, my question to start with is, are we really learning more about how language works or are we just kind of following culture? Well, it, it really depends on, on how you understand progress, obviously, in understanding language. You know, if we take the broad sweep of history and language going back to um, the ancient Greeks and Indian scholars, there has definitely been progress, although some of the ideas that are really popular today, such as topic and comment and, and generative procedures and these sorts of things, are, are fairly ancient. Uh, so, are, so is the concept of science. Um, if we look at, these, at the specific work of 
Chomsky and his followers, uh, of which there are thousands, we see a really interesting development that, you know, that did happen back in the 50s when Chomsky proposed a particular view of grammar, um, which seemed pe to people to be very impressive because um, for, for at least three reasons. One was empirical. He was able to um, notice, I mean, he didn't just explain things. He noticed things that people hadn't really noticed in linguistics, you know, so the famous case of auxiliary movement or, or in English, you know, when you ask a question. So John is here. Is John here? John bought the book. Did John buy the book? These sorts of things people noticed, obviously, because they speak English. But um, Chomsky was the first one to notice the theoretical interest. or uh, I mean, certainly one of the first. And, and he developed an interesting, and for many people, including myself at the time, a very convincing, I mean, I wasn't around reading linguistics in 1957. I was six years old. So I don't want to give the impression that, that I'm that old, but uh, I'm getting there. Uh, but um, but uh, it was, you know, th these were good ideas. They were very convincing. They were presented in an extremely technical, scientific vocabulary and style that just hadn't been seen in linguistics, who's, a lot of whose writers have been fairly discursive and who really didn't have a theory of linguistics in, in the sense that we often think of what a theory is, a formal model. And they, they instead, they, they vacillated back and forth between talking about language learning and describing structures of new languages and coming up with, uh, you know, statements on how to generalize across those things. But and there were some linguists just as sophisticated in mathematics as Chomsky ever was, maybe even more so, such as Charles Hockett and, um, and in some ways even Leonard Bloomfield. But Chomsky just, just hit it just right. He had brilliant ideas, so empirically, theoretically, uh, and then, then he, he changed. His, his huge change was to move us towards what he called rationalism, which uh, he associated with the concept of innate ideas, which certainly also was not unique to him, but which had been um, pretty much discarded by the time he came along and he revived it in some sense. You have to be careful when you talk about these things because the world is a large place and there's a lot of smart people in it and they're all working. So, you know, it's like, um, you know, asking when did studies of cognition begin, when did studies of the mind begin, is like asking when the first human emerged. Um, there wasn't a day when, you know, the, it, it's not like at one time Australopithecus went to bed and the next day woke up as a man or a woman. You know, I mean, there, there is no such thing as a first man or first woman. Um, there are all sorts of gradual experiments in between Australopithecus and humans and this we have a very spotty uh, fossil record and there's a lot of stuff we don't know but we we know that it doesn't make any sense to talk about Adam and Eve unless you actually believe that God created the world there was no first man or first woman um, there were uh, there is a time when you can point to a man and point to a woman and times before that when you can't but then there's a huge space of hundreds of thousands of years probably in between in which we have creatures um, approaching humanness, but who weren't quite fully human as we would define it today. So the same thing with studies of cognition. So um, uh, language has, I think, 
grown. We, we have improved our understanding of language. Chomsky's been a part of that. Uh, he's, you know, for some people, he's been the major catalyst. And for other people, he's just one voice. And, um, you know, I think we have instincts and the idea that we have inborn knowledge. These are very important ideas. They've been around human history ever since we started thinking about it. And Chomsky tapped into that. I don't find it particularly interesting. There are interesting ways to talk about innate knowledge. And there's nobody who doesn't believe in innate knowledge. I, I mean, innate uh, uh, mental capacities. I wouldn't call it knowledge, but uh, innate capacities. And so the question is, how developed are those things and, and whose theory uh, makes the most sense given the evidence? And I just don't think that nativism, uh, Chomsky's primary claim to fame, you know, in, in his perspective, where we actually have you know, specific hardwired abilities. It's not clear though. I mean, so, so if, we, if we just go back to some of the major things that Chomsky proposed, auxiliary inversion, which was the big focus of syntactic structures. That's interesting. It was very interesting at the time, but it doesn't exist like that anymore. There are similar operations, but it's that operation in particular is not found anymore. So we can't consider that, you know, a discovery. It's a, it's a milestone perhaps along the way to other things, but there's not a single thing that stands. Deep structure, for example, was considered to be a huge breakthrough. Oh, so, so we start off with this kind of underlying sentence in the deep structure and we apply operations to it and we get what we actually say. Uh, the surface structure, which is then interpreted by our sound structure, the phonology, which then, that was very interesting stuff, but that's not the, you know, that doesn't hold up anymore. I mean, Chomsky abandoned that uh, over 20 years ago, probably 25, 30 years ago now. So uh, there's no deep structure. There's no surface structure. There, uh, all these things are changing. And that in itself, of course, is not bad. Good science is always evolving. You know, so, so the basic way that if, if you want to consider it progress, that the theoretical Chomskyan understanding of language has made progress, is the formal tools have changed. So if you think that the ones that exist today are better than the ones that existed 10 years ago, then there's been progress. But those aren't going to be around very long either, you know, because these things change all the time. Because they're not discoveries. They're not empirical discoveries. They're simply postulates on this is the best way to look at language right now that we know of for people in that particular theoretical framework. So, you know, if, if somebody would ask me, what are the major discoveries of uh, generative linguistics? Well, I, I can't think of any. I can't think of a single one. Anything we know about language today in a general sense that we didn't know about it uh, 50, 60 years ago, uh, except for what has been neglected in, in Persian studies and semiotics. Uh, but, you know, we, we knew about that, but, but given Persia's particular history, it didn't, even though there are hundreds of books out now and more and more people working on it, and it's extremely sophisticated and very formal, it still isn't mainstream. But I'm, I'm wondering, um, like, like, for example, if you, if you read a lot of the, the literature about the cognitive revolution, you know, they always put the date around around the you know the fifties, and some of them even put you know the specific date when there was that conference at MIT. But yeah. you know, this this a, a lot of the debate 
uh, especially revolving around Chomsky about, you know, innateness or not innateness. I mean, isn't that just a repeat of the whole rationalist versus empiricist debate that, you know, that Plato was having thousands of years ago? Yeah, it's um, the debate between rationalism and empiricism uh, has been going on for a long time. On What Chomsky did was supposedly to revive it. So September 11th, which is a bad day, September 11, 2001. But September 11, 1956, was the day that MIT held a conference and the speakers included, I mean, they had originally invited Chomsky's teacher, Zelig Harris, but Zelig Harris um, didn't go for one reason or another and he suggested Chomsky, so they invited Chomsky. And so it was Chomsky and, uh, and George Miller um, Alan Newell and Herbert Simon. Herbert Simon went on to win a Nobel Prize in economics, and he and Alan Newell are among the founders of artificial intelligence. One could argue that just a couple of years later, with the appearance of his book Speech Acts, John Searle was an early cognitive scientist. Um, so, so these people, that the, the, what happened was um, they were all talking about what goes on in the mind. The artificial intelligence people wanted to get computers who could think like humans, and they thought they were making progress. Chomsky um, wanted to understand not the actual words that come out of people's mouths so much as the internal grammar that allows those, allowed those words to emerge, that generated those words. And, and when he said generate, he didn't mean create, he meant assign a, tech, a, a very um, explicit structure to. And then George Miller was was doing this fabulous work on short-term memory, you know, the magic number seven plus or minus two. Um, all of these were, were brilliant insights. Chomsky had more influence than all the others because people, everybody's fascinated by language, but not everybody's a linguist. So when an actual linguist stands up and tells you how language works and they say it in terms that you understand, I mean, it's not a coincidence that this was the time you know, Chomsky presented a theory of human language as a computational system uh, at a time when computers were really coming of age. And you had all these people, you know, Chomsky was hired. I mean, so he worked with Zelig Harris and he, uh, he did his master's thesis, which was the morphophonemics of modern Hebrew, which had already some underlying uh, forms in it. And then he went off still a student of Harris at the University of Pennsylvania, but he got a very prestigious four-year uh, fellowship as an MIT, as a Harvard uh, junior fellow, which B.F. Skinner had been a Harvard junior fellow. And, and, you know, this was one of, this is about as high as you could get in academics for doctoral support. And he's, he spent his time reading math and computer science and uh, came up with, uh, his thesis um, on transformational generative grammar, which was a brilliant idea. So here people thought, here's a linguist, and for the first time he's not talking about these weird little languages out in the jungle that none of us really care about. He's actually saying, what has the mind gotta be like for there to be language, and what are the formal properties of the mind? And he was, his work was in some ways far more interesting than Claude Shannon's work on information theory because Chomsky showed that Shannon, or he's claimed to have shown that Shannon, uh, Shannon's theory couldn't ultimately handle human language. 
he brought in mathematics of the kind that computer scientists really like, Emil Post and uh, all sorts of other uh, folks work on mathematics. So it was extremely timely, very brilliantly done and, ex and became very influential. I mean, to me, the more important date is not September 11, 1956, but September 9th, 1956, because that was Elvis Presley's first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. If we talk about culturally, that's a far more important date to me than um, than September 11th. But uh, that's my own personal bias. <laughs> no, I think I think that's fair enough. Um, and, and I'm sure that you know, long-term history will will look back on, on Elvis uh, as as a far more important figure than uh, than anyone from the field of linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's the case. I mean, um, linguist Tom Givon, who's, who's a very innovative linguist, who's always throughout his career been sort of wondering why anybody cared about Chomsky, when asked um, at a talk several years ago that I was at what he thought of Chomsky's recent ideas, he said, well, it's one more trip around the Maypole. So, so as far as he's concerned, you know, we've been, we've got about 70 years of going around the Maypole. Well, well, that, that's basically my next, my next kind of question, which is, can theorizing about um, like innate structures and things like that, can, can they ever actually develop testable theories? Um, like, like, you know, for example, there's the famous um, rule-following paradox, you know, developed by kind of, uh, well, Wittgenstein and, and Kripke. And they say, no course of action could be determined by a rule because every course of action can be made out to accord with the rule. So um, is it just a case that that it's it's just a dead end because it can never produce testable theories? Well, it depends on what you're trying to test. If you say that See, see, Chomsky's theory of grammar works at two different levels. All the people who work in Chomsky's theory, well, not all of the people who work in, in Chomsky-like theories believe in universal grammar. So, for example, Paul Postel, who's a good friend of mine and who worked with Chomsky for many years, develops ideas on linguistic analysis that are compatible with uh, Chomsky's ideas except that Postal doesn't believe in universal grammar at all. He thinks the whole idea is incoherent. He believes that uh, language is a sort of platonic mathematical system that uh, could never have evolved. We just discovered it because it exists just like you could never have a system of mathematics in which two plus two equals five. So according to Postal, that's the way, you know, sort of like the way language is. You know, you could never have a language in which... Uh, you know, properties are very different from what we know about languages today because language is this mathematical system. And he takes, he was heavily influenced by the late philosopher Jerry Katz in, in these ideas. So that, that's another view. I, I would say that 99% of the people who would call themselves, they would call themselves Chomsky and linguists, do very interesting empirical linguistic work in which universal grammar is not causally implicated at all. In other words, if I give you an analysis of the passive structure in, uh, in some language, I'm not thinking of universal grammar so much. I'm thinking of what the theory has said about passive structures and how to translate those into this particular language. I would like to think that the theory is anchored in universal grammar, but me as a poor working syntactician, I really don't have what it takes to evaluate universal grammar. 
that's that's one fact. So the average working syntactician or phonologist doesn't really find universal grammar. Their papers, in their papers, universal grammar doesn't seem to be causally implicated. On the other hand, the appeal of universal grammar and that kind of thing is that I'm not simply, when I analyze this sentence and this weird little language that I've worked on, or this big little, this big language I've worked on, I mean, all languages are significant. I wouldn't want that to be taken the wrong way. But uh, so, so I've discovered a structure, but I can now attribute more importance to my work because this structure I have discovered must therefore be part of universal grammar. And that, that's, that gives so much more importance to what I'm doing than merely describing languages. That's the view. That's, that's what supposedly sets Chomsky and linguistics apart from all the linguistics that preceded it. So my first teacher was Kenneth Pike, who would, did not believe in universal grammar, but he also was the first, he wrote about a lot of things that are important to Chomsky uh, before Chomsky did. He just didn't believe in universal grammar. Um, you know, he believed that uh, we had to describe languages. He thought we're, you know, he would have probably said we're far, we're too far away from understanding the languages that are currently spoken in the world to yet have this kind of deductive theory. You know, that's the other thing. Um, there are three forms of reasoning and basically only three forms and nobody can reason except with one of those three forms. And those are deduction, which is, um, you know, going from a premise to conclusions. And it's always certain. If you, if you have the right premise and you're following standard deductive procedures, you get to the right conclusion. That's largely how math works. And, and the other one is induction, uh, which means you start with facts and, and you say that other facts being like these facts, the generalization is probably X. So you're reasoning, so deduction is reasoning from generals to particulars and induction is re reasoning from particulars to generals. Induction is far more probabilistic and it's never certain. Deduction is certain, induction is uncertain. And then abduction, which is just the formalization of guessing, which was introduced into logic by Charles Peirce is the idea that, uh, you know, here's a fact that I don't have an account for. This fact surprises me. Like, let's say I see a tree and the leaves are red and I expected them to be green. Well, that's a surprising fact that the leaves are red, but then I can say, well, in fall, leaves die and the red is a byproduct of the, of the changing seasons. You know, therefore, uh, I have evidence that changing seasons cause red because they remove my surprise. I could easily say uh, that it's red because somebody painted them. And so I generate, and now I've generated two hypotheses. One, they're red because they were painted and two, they're red because the seasons are changing. And now I go back to induction and deduction to choose between those different hypotheses. So Chomsky was the first in the eyes of many linguists to put linguistic theory uh, out there as a deductive theory. He gave a set of principles that were supposed to be universal and they were universal because they, they were innate. And from those you could deduct, deduce the structures expected to be found in the world's languages. That's a very powerful idea. It was extremely attractive to many people and, um, 
there are thousands of careers built on that. And so if that turns out to be wrong, then those careers were misplaced. One of the, one of the reasons that's been suggested for the, for the cognitive revolution is because it was felt like just describing and kind of cataloging languages wasn't enough and that the field needed you know they wanted they wanted theoretical insights and it's it's kind of similar to to a criticism that i receive in my work as a language teacher because you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm a big believer in 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 descriptive in a descriptive point of view of language and there's a lot of people who again they they they're interested in language but they're not linguists who feel like um, that that's that it's not enough to to just let people use language to communicate that they have to use it in specific ways, and I kind of feel like that maybe that psychology is mirrored in in this idea of needing to have kind of rules that explain how language work, and you know is is it not do do we really need to to have this idea of of a kind of universal grammar or or universal structures is is it not just enough to to simply observe and describe language there are a couple of levels of answer that can be given to that question uh, the theories are very important to us because we don't like doubt and confusion i mean one of the most important philosophers to work on this was immanuel kant who talked about the need to reduce um, the manifold of experience to generality. You know, we experience all these things around us and we would like to make it simpler. We would like to know, so we categorize the world around us. You know, there's uh, scientific taxonomy. You know, you put dinosaurs in one phylum and, um, you know, you put Homo sapiens in one species and Homo erectus in another species and Homo is one genus and you put that into a larger family, you put that into a phylum. We like, you know, organization is very important. It brings sense to the world and that's what, what theories uh, do. Um, but notice that taxonomy is always a part of theory. You can't really get a good theory of where things came from unless you do taxonomy first. You know, so if you're describing a language and you say, okay, here's the grammar of X. Well, who cares? You haven't told me how this fits into our larger knowledge. And so, uh, you know, some of Chomsky's followers called that kind of linguistics, taxonomic linguistics, butterfly collecting. Oh, look, mommy, I found a pretty grammar out here. But, you know, what's the big deal? Who cares? Well, first of all, taxonomy, taxonomic linguistics has to proceed theoretical linguistics, or at least go hand in hand with it. So in addition to needing theories to bring order to our world, we need theories to give significance to our work. So if I'm describing a grammar and it doesn't, my work doesn't fit into a particular theory, most people aren't going to pay much attention to the grammar that I wrote. But if I can say, you know, so there's this, um, there were a lot of grammars written before Chomsky came along, but there the one, one grammar that Chomsky used to hold up as the number one grammar ever written, he said it's worth a thousand other grammars, was a, lang was a grammar of Haidatsa, Suan language. Haidatsa syntax was the name of the grammar. And it was written by, he's deceased now, Hugh Matthews, who turned out to be a good friend of mine. I mean, 
many years later, he and I met and we became really great friends. He was one of the ones who was hired at MIT along with Chomsky. He was hired about the same time as Chomsky, and he was a professor at MIT until he eventually left and became a missionary, where it's sort of a weird story. But Hugh Matthews wrote this grammar of Hidatsa syntax by simply giving rules and showing how they fit into larger principles of Chomsky's theory. He didn't give much data. You really couldn't pick up that book and find out much about Hidatsa syntax, but you could find out about the rules that he said that it it illustrated. And Chomsky liked it because it showed that it wasn't just some unique collection of sentences and discourses, but that it, it actually fit into Chomsky's theory. So he, Chomsky said it was worth more than a thousand other grammars in a 1972 publication. And, you know, even Hugh Matthews repu repudiated that grammar uh, later because it just didn't have much data. But so, so we want to give prominence to what we do. These theories become very big social organizations as well. So it's not just meaning intellectually, but meaning socially. If you choose to work within Chomsky's theory, you're working in the most powerful and widespread framework around. And if you choose not to work in it, well, then for a lot of people, you're outside of linguistics. Um, you know, you're not, you don't have the same uh, kinds of allies. You don't have the same network. So it's a real security blanket to master the basic components of a theory, to work within that theory. You know, when I started, it's a personal story, it doesn't mean that much. When I started working in Chomsky's theory, uh, we got to be very good friends and he would send me all of his publications before they, this was before the internet. So he would, I would be in Brazil and I would get this package of, of unpublished papers that were brand new by Noam Chomsky. And it was quite the you know, prestigious thing for me to be able to show my colleagues at the University of Campinas, oh, look, Chomsky sent me a package of papers, you know, and this was a big deal. And I went to MIT and spent a year there as a visiting uh, scholar and Chomsky would come into my office and I would go in his office and we talked a lot. And when it's time to apply for jobs, he helped me, you know, he wrote strong letters of recommendation for um, my first job and my promotion case. But then when I left the theory, he said, I'm a charlatan and uh, not to be taken seriously. So there was a huge transformation and that's going to happen to people when they drop out of theories to go on their own way. I mean, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, and th that's something I wanted to, to ask you about because I think that probably a majority of uh, linguists working uh, today and, and and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but you'll probably find them in the psychology department of most universities. Um, and I'm wondering if you feel like that's the right place for them to be. You know, if you feel like um, that, you know, that there, there is that basically linguistics is a kind of subfield of, of psychology. Well, I think you find a lot of one of Chomsky's contributions was that many linguistics departments started after his work and um, he was influential in getting linguistics as a discipline to become so powerful in the United States. The early grants from the U.S. military because they were interested in machine translation and because Chomsky had been hired at MIT by Victor Ingva, who was one of the pioneers of computational linguistics and machine translation in the world, people thought that Chomsky's theory was going to um, be very important for machine translation. 
Uh, in, in particular, the U.S. military thought this, the Department of Defense. So a lot of Department of Defense grants and a lot of U.S. Army and Navy Air Force grants went to help start departments and fund the research of Chomsky and linguists. But, you know, machine translation uh, was developed later, much more accurately by people who don't really pay that much attention to Chomsky's theories. You know, there's now a big center for machine translation at Carnegie Mellon University that uh, I used to have some contact with when I was professor of computational linguistics at Pitt and CMU. So Chomsky would say that that linguistics is a branch of biology and that psychology is too. On the other hand, Edward Sapir would have said that uh, psychology and linguistics are both branches of anthropology. Uh, and that so, you know, this, this kind of uh, labeling, um, a purse would have said that anthropology and linguistics, psychology and biology are all, you know, in a sense, branches of semiotics. Um, so you get different ways of looking at these things, and it's not clear what's gained by arguing at length about, about these things. Chomsky's um, theory is still the most powerful theory in terms, in social terms, but it isn't probably the, the biggest theory anymore. In fact, I would say that its numbers are falling in many parts of the world, and that's neither here nor there. There are lots of other ways of looking at language. I think newer generations of linguists who are much more mathematically uh, and experimentally oriented, such as my son or who, you know, at the University of uh, Miami or, or people who, who work in MIT's Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department or the Department of Psychology at Berkeley and many other places, these more quantitative oriented folks um, tend not to work so much in Chomsky's uh, theory. Uh, you know, there are exceptions, obviously, but there are always exceptions. So anything I say about there, you know, people do this, people do that, they, you know, these are full of exceptions. There's, you know, people are complex. And so you find them spread out across a lot of, a lot of different areas. So, you know, there's, there's also a theory out right now, the model theoretic syntax, which is very important. It's not, you know, it's been around for a while. And one of the primary proponents of model theoretic syntax is Jeffrey Pullum, who's at the University of Edinburgh. And um, it's extremely formal, but it's not concerned about universal grammar. So a lot of people stay away from it because there's no strong cognitive claim. They, they use formal devices to come up with formal characteristics and characterizations of human languages. And uh, they don't speculate on the ultimate sources of these devices, you know. So um, that's less exciting to some people because it, it doesn't say, oh, look, I found a structure and this structure comes from our genes, you know, which is, to most biologists, is, is a very implausible notion. I'm, I'm really interested in, in asking you a couple more questions about how, uh, you know, Chomsky has been so influential and how, how his work kind of reflects maybe power structures in, in linguistic study. And, and for example, um, George Miller uh, recently published like a reflection of his role in the cognitive revolution. And he said in his paper that he wrote, he said, the behavioral revolution transformed experimental psychology in the US. Perception became discrimination, memory became learning, language became verbal behavior, and intelligence became what intelligence tests test. And when I read that, it really hit me hard because like I spend a lot of my time telling students that 
these language exams that they do, which supposedly measure their fluency, are often a terrible reflection of their actual language ability. And so maybe, you know, by by focusing on the results of of one particular discipline, the you know, maybe the linguistics has been kind of led astray? Well, it's, an, it's a dramatic simplification of the historical record to talk about behaviorism in that particular way. Behaviorism was a revolution, but before that revolution, there was still cognitivism. I mean, Immanuel Kant, uh, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, uh, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, many people worked on cognition uh, long before behaviorist so-called revolution. And when behaviorism did come around, there are a couple of different versions of it, many versions of it, in fact. Uh, one version is fairly innocuous. It says that to understand the mind, we have to see how the behavior what the behavior tells us about the mind. I mean, that's the way all school exams work, you know? I mean, it may be that language exams could be better designed. When I had to take some language exams, uh, they brought in a native speaker and just told me to talk to that person. And then uh, they evaluated how well I could talk to him by whether I was talking to him or not. Um, that wasn't so bad. You know, written tests about oral abilities is like testing the wrong thing. But, uh, you know, math tests, you can tell the teacher, look, I knew the answer to this math question. I can do this math. And she, she might say, well, you never passed the exams. I don't know how I'm supposed to believe you can do it when you never pass the exams. So there is a, there is a definite uh, belief that behavior indicates the mind. It's part of pedagogy. It's part of um, even science. I mean, um, Chomsky and linguists have to evaluate behavior, that is what people say and then what they say about what they think they said and what they meant. Uh, these are all behaviors, and they use these to get at what the mind must be. But behaviorism took a different turn when um, Burris uh, F. Skinner came along, B.F. Skinner, and, you know, proposed verbal behavior. Skinner really didn't know much about language. He just was on a roll. He was, you know, he denied he had a simple theory, deny the brain, deny the mind, and just talk about behavior, since we can measure that. And and he showed that, you know, you can measure behavior fairly accurately. And then why, why propose the mind? It's just behavior. Well, so he came out with this book, Verbal Behavior, which is not entirely stupid. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. But Chomsky wrote a review of that book, which in retrospect, we can pick apart. I mean, a lot of behaviorists didn't, you know, felt like that review that Chomsky wrote was... Uh, didn't understand behaviorism. You know, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Chomsky's, the effect of that review was to destroy behaviorism. In 1959, when that review came out, people thought, well, how did we ever believe this silly stuff about verbal behavior? And that was the end of it. You know, I read a, I read a biography of uh, B.F. Skinner that said he had nightmares of Chomsky for years. Um, you know, I don't know if that's, I have no idea whether that's true or not. Uh, you know, since we're talking about a behaviorist, he would have to give a behavior that showed nightmares. I, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but that was a devastating review, whatever we think about its content and it changed. So 
so it wasn't a cognitive revolution. It was a cognitive resurgence, a cognitive victory, not over behaviorism, because there's already there's still an American Behavioral Association and thousands of people who still do behaviorism. So it never went away. I just a few years ago, I gave the annual B.F. Skinner lecture to this society. Uh, I know that B.F. Skinner's name is still held in you know, still revered, but he, he introduced a radical behaviorism. His, his form of behaviorism was much more uh, out there than, than other forms of behaviorism. And John Stadden has a, has a great book called The New Behaviorism, which, which outlines, an, you know, a very uh, reasonable theory of behaviorism that is not subject to the criticisms that Chomsky leveled against Skinner's uh, radical behaviorism, which other behaviorists call radical. So, so what happened was everybody was studying the mind, everybody was studying culture, everybody was studying the mental cognition, using the term cognition. And then behaviorism came along and said, look at this, this is really, really cool. And we can give much more formal theories. Um, although the first mathematical experimental psychology done in the United States was again in 1860, uh, actually is yeah, 1860s, early 70s paper by Joseph Jastra and Charles Sanders Peirce on uh, measuring uh, sensations. This was the first experimental psychology paper ever done in the United States and second or third ever done in the world after the German psychologist Wilhelm Wundt. Psychology was around for a long time uh, and then, then uh, Skinner changed its form and then the so-called cognitive revolution uh, brought us back to cognition. I mean, it didn't, it didn't take us to cognition for the first time. It brought us back to cognition. So I might call it a, um, you know, the cognitive counter-revolution or the cognitive resurgence, but it was not a revolution in any, any sense of that word. One thing that happened to linguistics after that is where, whereas people like Sapir considered language as part of culture and society, Chomsky succeeded in reifying linguistics. It was an enormous reification of linguistics, and I have a paper on that, actually. There was, um, there was a, a conference at the British Academy uh, several years ago on the 60th anniversary of the Cognitive Revolution, and they invited a number of people who, who were very pro-Chomsky, but apparently the funders told them it couldn't be just a big happy party for the believers. So they had to, you know, so they wound up inviting me, you know, so my talk was why there was no cognitive revolution. <laughs> just to stick the knife in and twist the knife. <laughs> yeah. And why there, why there are no innate ideas. You know, I know all these people, I've known them for a long time. Uh, the people who work in these areas, I don't know all of them, but I know a lot of them prominent names and they're, they're good people. They're really smart people. Somebody said, if you don't believe in universal grammar, how do you account for, all the discoveries in linguistics. Well, my first response was to ask what discoveries, but I decided not to be rude and, and say, if for 60 years you've got a lot of really smart people working on language, they're going to come up with good ideas. It doesn't matter what theory they're working on, right? I mean, you're just simply telling me that there's 60 years of really smart people working on language and they've discovered a couple of things. Although, the only way we know their discoveries is if they can also be stated outside of Chomsky's theory, because, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of theories of language. And, and so what is a discovery? Is it something that just one theory can appreciate or is it something that, I don't know, you don't see these kinds of things. The closest thing you have to it in say physics is string theory, 
uh, which is considered by a lot of people to be really out there bizarre stuff. Um, I'm not a physicist, so so I don't know. There was a lot of good work that came out. George Miller's work was spectacular. You know, Alan Newell and Herb Simon, as I think back on it, you know, Alan Newell, Herb Simon, they were at Carnegie Mellon, and I got to know both of them when I was at Carnegie Mellon on the computational linguistics faculty when I was at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, Chomsky, I've known for over 40 years. John Searle, who was part of it uh, a couple of years later throughout, has been a friend of mine for over 40 years. I didn't meet George Miller, but I, you know, I've been around these ideas. So, so take Alan Newell and Herb Simon. They tried, you know, they were pioneers in artificial intelligence, which is extremely important. And you know, anytime you think about telling them, talking to a machine, that's artificial intelligence and it's computational linguistics. So these are very important practical fields of technology. But I don't think that uh, in Dark Matter of the Mind, my Chicago Press book, I talk about. Um, what I consider to be major flaws in the in the conceptualization of artificial intelligence. But these are all these are still progress, right? These are all interesting ideas. I don't really think computers think. They don't think like humans think. Um, they can solve problems. They can do all kinds of interesting stuff. But you know, I think the reason it's called artificial intelligence is because it is artificial and it's not real intelligence. And and I don't think that language, there is a universal grammar and, you know, George Miller's work is is brilliant on short-term memory. There's nothing to say. I mean, and all this work is brilliant. The fact that it didn't pan out is, uh, doesn't mean it wasn't brilliant. Most of our ideas don't pan out. You know, we're just a a young species in the history of the world, and we've only had toilet paper for a couple of hundred, I don't know how long we've had it, but you know, it's, you know, we, as one thing George Miller showed was that it's very hard for humans to remember more than seven things in their working memory. And you know, so after a couple of million years of evolution, we can only remember seven things. It's nothing to get too excited about. You know, we're not these great cognitive monsters that rule the universe. I bet there's somewhere there's a species that can remember more than seven things. To get excited about the idea that we've discovered the true theory of anything is pretty silly. We, we just make progress and it gives us great satisfaction in our lives. And we, we know we've developed a way of evaluating these things and it, it seems to be valid. You know, Peirce said that we all make mistakes and we make it's mistakes are built into science and built into reasoning. This is called fallibilism. But as a society working together over a long period of time, at some distant point in the future, when we reach the end of inquiry about a specific problem, we can say we've achieved truth. When will that end of inquiry come for anything? Uh, we don't know. Uh, in the meantime, we push forward with hope and satisfaction. And I love what I do. Um, somebody asked me once, are you sure you're right about Pina Han? My answer is, hell no, I don't know that I'm right. I mean, I've done the best I can. It might be that I'm wrong, but it, I don't think it's gonna be that easy to show. And certainly people have been trying to show it for the past couple of decades, but uh, um, but nobody has a monopoly on the truth. You know, I I am, am just another humble soul out there trying to figure out things that are really complicated and much more complicated than, than my brain. I, I love that way of thinking. And, and I, and you know, I don't, I don't work in academia, you know, I'm not an academic, but I've definitely seen um, perhaps a lack of that kind of attitude, you know, people willing to accept that they could be wrong and that they're just part of a, of a longer chain of humanity just trying to understand more about the world.
Yeah, I mean, you you get the attitude from some people working in linguistics and other sciences that uh, they really should be wearing robes and there should be incense burning about them as they work uh, and approach the truth. And, um, you know, that's just not the way, it's just not the way it is. And I'm not making light of it. I mean, science is really hard work. It takes huge rigor. And, you know, you you watch the 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 tapes on reasoning and thinking and scientific research by Richard Feynman, one of the most brilliant physicists who ever lived. And he just talks about how hard the work is. And it's really hard in every discipline. You know, even though, let's say physicists are the smartest scientists, uh, you know, and linguists are the dumbest scientists. Well, I'm one of the dumb of the dumb, you know, I'm, but it's, it doesn't make it any less difficult. My problems are hard for me and I work on them all day. Uh, from the time I get up in the morning till the time I go to bed at night, I'm reading and writing and trying to figure things out, except for when I make tacos and stuff. But With Tabasco sauce? It, well, I make my own salsa. But, uh, uh, I mean, I grew up on the border with Mexico, so I have strong opinions about Mexican food. We're doing the best we can, and some of us are privileged enough to be paid to do this stuff. And so we have to return an honest day's labor for an honest day's pay. I mean, I come from a blue... I came from from poverty growing up in a trailer park, you know, and and so I feel so privileged to be doing what I'm doing now when I could, you know, if I had followed in the footsteps of my two fathers, I would, my stepfather and my biological father, I would be dead now of either alcoholism or working myself to death three jobs like my stepfather did. But actually, I have a really good job and and I get to pursue these things. And I have the internet, which is the most marvelous invention for scholars in, you know, since the book. The book is still a much better invention. There's no technology better than the book. So anyway, we're all working on this together and we shouldn't take it too seriously, although people do take themselves very seriously. Because if you say, hey, look, I don't think there's any universal grammar, then people say, then what have I been doing for the past 50 years? And I say, I don't know, really. Um, so, so the, it, you know, People attach a lot of self-worth into these things. Obviously, um, there's, you know, like what we were talking about before, that there are some ideas that are still very powerful in, in, in the world of linguistics. And so one of those is, is innateness. And there's, there's this great quote from, from Hilary Putnam. And, and he said, Let a complete 17th century education be innate, if you like. Invoking innateness only postpones the problem of learning. It does not solve it. How do you how do you feel about that? Well, you know, Hilary Putnam has a very interesting history. He just died uh, last year or the year before. He's one of my favorite philosophers of all time. He went to high school with Chomsky, and he did his. He and Chomsky went to high school and college together, and they've known each. You know, they had known each other forever, and and Putnam deeply respected Chomsky, and I think Chomsky deeply respected Putnam. But, you know, I totally agree with that statement, saying that, um, let's say you, you want to claim that relative clauses are the way they are because they're innate. Well, how do they get to be innate? What were the conditions that led to their evolution? What was, um, you know, that's one thing when people propose that something's part of universal grammar, they give no evolutionary history of it at all. And you can't give, you can't say something is innate with any meaning without trying to get come up with an account of how it evolved. 
that somebody has to be talking about how it evolved. I mean, you could say, well, I'm just an anatomist. I just find these things out and I know they're part of the body and I know the body evolved, but I'm not an evolutionary biologist. Okay, fair enough. But where is the evolutionary linguist that show us where these things got into universal grammar? Uh, Pinker tried to do some of this, but, but it wasn't successful. I mean, I could go into a long discussion of why it wasn't successful, but Pinker is one who's tried um, with his former student, Paul Bloom, but I don't, uh, I don't find these approaches uh, passing, passing muster. So, you know, Dan Slobin, a, a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, said that poverty of these, poverty of stimulation, oh, excuse me, poverty of stimulus is just poverty of imagination. You say that there's not enough evidence. Well, it's because you probably framed the problem uh, wrongly, what you find a standard a standard um, argumentative or or argumentation method in generative grammar is to reify the subject to make it so specialized that you can 't see how it 's connected to anyone else or anything else and say, "So where did that come from? Well, nobody has an answer to that because the way you stated it just so if, if you go back to 1976 and you look at these famous debates between Jean Piaget and Noam Chomsky, Piaget was trying to find common ground because he believed in an innate order of acquisition of different things. And Chomsky wasn't having any of it. So Chomsky would stand up to the board and look at WH movement, which of course Piaget didn't know anything about and say, how could you handle that? Well, Piaget doesn't know how to handle that because that's a very technical, theoretical component of Chomsky's theory, which most linguists, I think, don't even buy. You know, it's it's a way of thinking about it that that takes it away from meaning, that simply looks at a formal structure that the theory has proposed, and it's a sort of it's a sort of rhetorical trick, instead of putting it in terms where other people can understand it and interact with it. So this a standard device to argue for innateness is is to reify the subject matter to the point that it doesn't seem to have anything to do with other aspects of human cognition. But other people can come along and show that, in fact, there's a different perspective on it. And so, so to give one example, um, I used to teach Chomsky's theory regularly. You know, for, for over 20 years in college, I taught Chomsky's theory when I taught linguistics. And then one year, I came along the, uh, upon the work of Robert Van Valen and, and his role in reference grammar. And I read this enormous book that he had out, he and Randy LaPola, on uh, introduction to role in reference grammar. And I thought, even though this is a big book, <laughs> it's because it goes through so many case studies. It's actually simple. It's far simpler than Chomsky's theory, but I can't think of anything it leaves out. It accounts for all of it as, as pretty much natural, semantic, communicative responses you know, to the world. Um, and so I stopped teaching Chomsky's theory, and I started teaching role and reference grammar. And this was long before I started taking people on about recursion. I just found that role and reference grammar was a simpler way of accounting for the same facts. And I realized that you didn't need to reify your explanations so much and that these simpler explanations could work. But I mean, if, 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 if I'm going to play devil's advocate, you know, I would say that um, innateness is in one way proven by the fact that, um, well, it's, it's what Charles Hockett kind of argued that that really you know the brain contains physical structures you know synaptic connections and and you know they would 
in a physical way reflect you know what the brain knows so isn't that just a kind of innateness the human brain is innate i mean only humans have brains and that's given by human genes and the human brain makes human language possible in that general sense human language is definitely innate there's no question about it there's also the fact that um yeah the brain is designed to establish and and synaptic connections and to get rid of other synaptic connections to use it or lose it um and so you know evelina federenko's work has shown that there are language networks that go across subjects and across languages in which meaning structures and she shows that syntax is secondary and that uh, symbolic meaning is primary in these language networks are basically semiotic networks uh, I'm trying to get her to call them that but I doubt that she will uh, anyway there so so let me call them her language networks I would call semiotic networks and they're found in the brain um, and and they're found in pretty much the same place in everybody's brain does that mean it's innate well she doesn't think so uh, she's she's agnostic on that she doesn't think there's evidence one way to prove one way or the other although she leans towards not innate. I tend to be less agnostic and more atheist. Um, I don't think they are innate, but you know, you say, well, how did they get where they're stored? Well, I don't know. Let's, one, one study I've suggested that nobody's ever taken me up on is um, where, where is the knowledge of burrito making in my, in my brain? And where is the knowledge of burrito making in my Mexican friend's brain? And do we, are they more or less in the same place? And are we therefore going to say that burrito making is innate? Well, the, the ability to make burritos is innate, and it involves certain kinds of conceptual uh, and physical activities, which might fit particular cells of the brain uh, better than other cells of the brain, which means it would probably localize in the same place. Yeah, everything we know is in our brain. That doesn't mean everything we know is innate. It just means that the brain is itself innate and enables us to do this. So the question is never between nature and nurture. The question is how much nature and how much nurture. They're, they're definitely, you know, Chomsky says that, that universal grammar is just whatever the biology that supports language is, okay? Well, that's not a very good answer because I can answer that uh, the only only biological specialization in the human body we know of for language is the position of the tongue. So maybe the tongue is therefore universal grammar. I don't think that's what he meant. Uh, we could say that the brain is universal grammar because that's the bio, but I also don't think that's what he meant. He means, even in spite of how he says it, he means that universal grammar is the biological component of language that is dedicated and innate to language only. Uh, and that we don't have any evidence for. Um, there's just no evidence for that such a, such a thing exists. But there is a lot of evidence that uh, the brain enables human language. But in my own work, I, I argue that, you know, other animals have, have things very close to linguistic systems. And I wouldn't want to say that all, only humans have language. Only humans... So communication, all, all creatures have. Just about every living creature, in fact... Hearst might even say that even rocks have an ability to communicate with their environment in some way. But um, uh, language is specific to humans, and I've tried to give an account for why language is specific to humans. It is related to the human brain, but it, it, it's, there's nothing specific for language in the human brain. And, and that's, the, that's the big difference. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the brain that makes language possible, but there's nothing in the brain that seems to be dedicated exclusively to language.
um, until after we've learned language. And then those things that Evelina Federinko has studied, those language or semiotic networks, they, um, they're pretty rigid. And once they're damaged in adults, you get very specific linguistic disorders. And so, um, but these don't re require innateness for their explanation. You know, another very persistent idea from from the, the cognitive revolution is, of course, the idea of, uh, you know, universals, looking for linguistic universals. And um, I remember at the end of one of your, your, your talks recently, uh, someone asked you about uh, something about grammaticality versus ungrammaticality. And your reply was that you don't like those terms and that you prefer to talk about things that are acceptable and unacceptable. And I, and I thought, well, yeah, because, you know, especially for me who tries to teach language, you know, something, and this is what I find attractive about other, you know, theories of grammar, like for example, um, construction grammar, is that they allow for just creativity. And, and I'm wondering if maybe if the search for rules is just almost um, completely pointless, like if, if it could just never happen. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the idea of acceptability and unacceptability versus grammaticality and ungrammaticality, this goes back to the generative semanticists and to people like George Lakoff, uh, who argued for this position back in the 70s, the early 70s. And I think they're right. You know, we try to fit things into our understanding, into our knowledge bases, and if we can fit a structure in there, it, we will give it an interpretation. So saying that it's ungrammatical to me just means it's difficult to process. There are lots of examples and discussions of this in the literature. There's no knockdown uh, argument, but I don't have to accept your theory-bound notions of grammaticality and ungrammaticality to account for facts in a much more fluid way. I think that the creativity of language, Chomsky talks about the creativity of language as being the ability to generate novel sentences. But to me, that's not where creativity lies. That's fairly simplistic stuff. Creativity lies in discourse. And, and recent work in the philosophy of language, which is very compatible with Peirce because it is pragmatist, is Robert uh, Brandom's work on discursive knowledge and, and inferential semantics. We come to know the meaning of things as we learn to use them in discourse and we make certain commitments to what they mean and how we will interpret them. And so it's through storytelling that we become linguistic creatures. And so the creativity of language is found in storytelling and, and discourses and conversation and not in you know, I mean, you can walk into a new culture and you can say, who tells the best stories? And everybody will have a favorite person. But you don't ask who tells the best noun phrases because, um, you know, that's not a big deal. You know, everybody, uh, everybody can do their noun phrases. I used to think this was an argument for universal grammar and sentences being qualitatively different than stories. And I used to use it that way. But that's, that's really not what it says. It just says that... The creative aspect of language is not in sentence structures, but in s discourse structures. And, and so, so I, I don't really think that when we look at this, when we look at the history of language from 1957 to today, that we can point to a great deal um, that we're indebted to Chomsky about. We're indebted to him for social facts like the creation of new departments. We're indebted to him for putting lingu linguistics on the map in a way that nobody had done. We're indebted to him for um, 
what initially was a much more rigorous way of thinking about language, but we don't know more about language today uh, through generative uh, syntax than we did in 1957. We don't know uh, more about the mind. We just, you know, um, it was it was a great idea. You know, I gave a talk um, which didn't go over very well. Many of my talks don't go over well. Um, and at the end of the, the last slide was universal grammar. It was a great idea. Uh, well, it wasn't. And I said universal grammar. It wasn't even a good idea. Why think that? And um, it was met with silence. You know, I mean, you could say it's a great idea. It didn't pan out. I don't even think it was a good idea. I don't think that it's a good idea when you're confronting structures to say, oh, I know they're all they all come from the genes. I just don't think that's the place to begin. You might be driven there by the science, but as a place to begin, I, I completely agree with Putnam that it's like saying that all of 17th century knowledge is innate. We just have to we just have to work it out. I mean, Plato would have thought that. He would have been fine with that. Chomsky's even said that the notion of carburetors are innate. I have a quote on that in a, in a paper. Um, and, you know, so, you know, Fodor thought everything was innate at one point. In one of his books, he argued that just about every concept we have is innate. And, you know, that doesn't tell me anything. That's just like reading a comic book. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. But, um, um, but you read it because these are supposedly serious proposals and you and you try to figure out what would they mean and how would one argue against these things. But the world is complex and and things are people are more different than they are alike. And uh, there's a new book out, for example, on hunter gatherer languages. And it, one of the things that says is that hunter gatherer languages are just like all other languages. Well, the first question is, then why would you put out a book that says hunter-gatherer languages? Don't, you know, if they're the same as everybody else, I don't, you know, I'll just read about French. Um, and the, the other thing is that, uh, how do you know? I mean, what a silly thing to say. No, they've looked at all of them, Dan. They've studied all 7,000. They know. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've looked at every language and you know there's no, com and you have all the cultural background and you're looking at it as somebody who's who's all three anthropologists, psychologists, linguists, and a little bit of philosopher. Uh, I mean, it just, you know, we ask the questions, we ask the questions we're equipped to ask. And, and so we're not always equipped to ask the questions that have the answers. And it's a lot of our research is Chomsky gives this illustration of a guy who's, who loses his keys and he's over searching for them under the street lamp. And somebody said, you find him? He says, well, they said, well, I don't know if they're here or not. He said, well, then why are you looking there? Because the light's better. Um, you know, it's, it, again, we're just these primitive creatures feeling our, our way around in the dark. That isn't, that's not an excuse for not doing good science, but it's, uh, the, the other thing we like to do is have a high priest or high priestess. So we always look to specialists. We look for talking heads. Um, and, and, you know, reporters are really bad at this, you know, like reporters will always go, I know because I've been covered so much in the press, whenever they're going to get another opinion about me, I know who they're going to go ask, right? The people who they always ask. And so they're always going to get the same answer. I, one reporter was doing a story on me for an Israeli newspaper. And I said, here's an idea. Why don't you be original and not ask these people, ask some other people. And so he didn't do the story. I got to tell you, I you don't make a lot of money just because you're covered in all the newspapers. And, uh, you know, I've seen my picture enough to know that it's not something I 
necessarily want to have shared with thousands of people. So unless they want to put some money up front there, I, you know, I'm happy to be reported on in a positive way. But when it's just repetitive and there people saying the same thing, well, that's the way it works because imitation and innovation are the two great forces in society. Imitation always works unless the ecology shifts drastically, therefore imitation is always the simplest solution. If we're living in the same environment and I know that somebody else's solution work, works, why would I invent my own? I just do theirs because that takes a lot less effort. It's only when the ecology shifts dramatically that innovation uh, comes about. So everybody imitates and we imitate uh, celebrities. So why do people buy by the jerseys of famous athletes. Why in the world would I want to wear somebody else's name on my back? I couldn't give a rip that I had, you know, this guy, why would I, you know, if I saw, I love Mick Jagger's music. I love the Rolling Stones, but I wouldn't walk across a, a room to, to greet Mick Jagger. I sure the hell wouldn't ask anybody for their autograph. What is, this is just silly stuff. Um, and, and so, so why, why do this, this, selfie crap. And I remember walking around semester at sea when I was dean on that, traveling around the world and all the students are taking photos everywhere and videos. And they said, Dan, you're not videoing anything. You're not taking any photographs. I said, yeah, well, it's called my eyes. See, I can see it. <laughs> I said, I said, why would I want to take a picture? Who the hell's ever going to, you can actually sit somebody down and walk them through all 5,000 of your photos. They don't want to see that stuff. Tell them to go visit. Um, and, and, and so much of that is so, so a lot of the following of Chomsky is like, it's the same thing as wearing professional athlete jerseys. We just want to be on the Chomsky team or we want to be on the somebody else team. And I've never been a really good team player. I, I just find it offensive to think that anybody, um, you know, I know there are a lot of people smarter than me in the world, but I like to pretend they're not. So I be responsible for finding things out on my own. <laughs> well, you know, like like for me, um, you know, l learning about this <clears throat> this issue about you know about the cognitive revolution and the history of you know modern linguistics. I think the thing that's been disturbing for me has been um, to think about again how how some of this stuff has reflected on the industry that I work in, which is language learning, and how a big a big debate that's happening right now in language learning is how for the past you know 50 years we have reified the native speaker and you know the objective of every language learner and every language course is about trying to be like a native speaker and you know it's just it's just a stupid idea it's a, it, it doesn't make sense and it's just something that everybody believes to be true and and I came across this quote from Chomsky and he said um Linguistic theory is concerned with an ideal speaker-listener in a completely homogenous speech community who knows the language perfectly and is unaffected by such grammatically irrelevant conditions as memory limitations, distractions, shifts of attention and interest and errors. And it's basically a description of a unicorn. Um, you know, whoever that is, it doesn't exist. And, and I see the same thing reflected in in you know with the with the students how they they want this kind of perfect speaker and i don't know i just it just really makes me sad actually you know chomsky's quote makes sense in in a couple of for a couple of reasons first of all idealizations are always important in science you know when we talk about gravity we're talking about gravity usually in a vacuum you know when you say that 
a feather and a rock will fall to the ground in the same amount of time. That might be true in a vacuum, but it's not true in the real world. If Galileo had actually dropped two things from the top of the Tower of Pisa, they would have gotten there at different times because it's not a vacuum. So that's the good thing about it. So it's okay to, it's okay to say that. But the other issue that is not so okay is that it's based on the idea that there is a static knowledge of grammar, that language is something you know rather than something you do. I talk about languaging better, more than I do language. You know, we're languaging all the time. It's an activity that we're engaged in and it emerges from knowledge, but these knowledge allows, allows freedom. We're not rules in, in that sense. You know, that's one of the, the appeals of, of some forms of embodied cognition is the idea that we're sort of resonating with the world. Um, that's not very precise. And so I don't want to defend that idea because I'm not able to defend that idea, but there, there's an appeal to that uh, of, of embodied uh, cognition. But, you know, what I, what I do think is that if that's part of the reification of Chomsky and grammar, it's, it's not only an idealization because idealizations are okay. It's an idealization that leaves out what's really exciting about language, which is how does it vary? You know, the, the linguist Stephen Levinson uh, from the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in Nijmegen, he's retired now, I guess, uh, said that variation is where it's at. And he has a paper called The Original Sin of, of Cognitive Science, which is that it was after stability, like the, the quote you just gave me from Chomsky, as opposed to variation. And variation is where it's at. And that's what I think, too. And so... So the big failing of cognition, cognitive science, is first of all, there isn't one. There's just a lot of studies of the brain. Uh, there's no such thing as cognitive science. When I, I'm trustee professor of cognitive sciences, but I made sure to put that on there as plural. Um, and, and I just, I could make up my own title. They made me a trustee professor and then you can make up your own title. So I put cognitive sciences because that's a, 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 a more grand sounding name than linguist uh, or sociologist, which I don't want to be called by those labels. So, um, but sciences, not science. There is no science of the brain. There are lots of people that look at the brain and cognition from a variety of perspectives. Um, the best that's being done, in my opinion, in the world today is at uh, MIT's Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department. Um, just some of the best work on language, some of the best work on the brain, some of the best work on cognition anywhere in the world, probably the best actually is, is being done there. So um, I don't know whether they call it singular or plural in the title of the uh, department actually, but I know that in practice it's plural. I just want to finish by just asking you one, um, one, one final question. Um, so, so this is actually the closing paragraph of um, of a, of a paper written by Jeffrey Pullum about the, the philosophy of linguistics. And the final paragraph is, while attention continues to be lavished on questions about how creatures like us came to have brains perfectly adapted to learning languages, few philosophers or linguists consider the possibility that the right question is how natural languages adapt themselves so well to being learned by creatures like us. Um, do, do you think that that kind of subs up the, the situation right now? It's an extremely um, good way of putting it. Um, 
in in his book, The Symbolic Species, Terence Deacon, uh, also of UC Berkeley, uh, argued for exactly that point, that language adapted to us. And he did it from the perspective of Charles Peirce's semiotics. There are mathematical aspects of semiotics, which are not that complicated. And once we have those in mind, we know that languages, symbols adapt themselves to cultures. They come out of cultures. And, and the grammars to support those symbols come out of cultures. So yes, I think that the way, way to look at it, it's, it's, I also ask this about the mind. Cognitive science, as generally understood, asks what is in the mind? To me, the question is not what is in the mind, but what culture is the mind in? Um, or what is the mind in? just more generally. And that's a similar way of putting it uh, relative to cognitive sciences. So it has, how have our minds adapted to our cultures and how have our languages adapted to our minds and our cultures? Um, I think that's the right way to look at it.